Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, June 11th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Later on in our program, uh, we'll be coming up with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. And in this program, we continue our focus on Black Music Month. The program will feature our regular Pan-African Newswire report uh, with dispatches on the resumption of fighting between two military structures in the Republic of Sudan after a 24-hour truce. Valuable documents have been damaged and lost in Senegal in the aftermath of unrest. Tunisia is to receive additional assistance in dealing with the migrant crisis, and Honduras uh, has established diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China under the new progressive government. In the second and third hours, we will continue to examine the history of African-American music with the blues legend B.B. King and Muddy Waters. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, uh, so stay tuned. And uh, in our Black Music Month uh, commemoration, we want to focus uh, on uh, the West African state of Ghana. This is from uh, the legendary group entitled the African Brothers Band International. This is from the album entitled Locomotive Train. One, two, three, four. Oh, no, no, I'm not going to be a good 
Oh, 
I hope you are all dead. Alive. Jesus. Now, I beg you, make you all help me. Tell every man and woman where he is inside this world. Something about love. That makes everybody hold in love tight. For this world we day inside. Number one. Living. Living. Number two. Fear. Fear. Number three. Corner. Corner. Is day inside proper. Alive. No. Now here we go. One, two, three, four.
listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, this special edition of our program for Sunday, uh, June 11th, uh, 2023. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, this is uh, Black Music Month, and we just heard the music of uh, the African Brothers Band International, uh, led by Nana Kwame Amparu. Uh, who was born on uh, March 31st of 1945. He made his transition on September the 28th of 2021. He was a popular Ghanaian musician and composer. He's credited with numerous popular highlight tracks, and he is known to have composed over 800 songs. <clears throat> he was also known as the Adwamatofo Ghanahene. Amparu was the lead singer, chief songwriter, and founder of the African Brothers Band. Uh, he is regarded as a pioneer in uh, West African music and one of the most illustrious Ghanaian musicians of uh, the 20th century. Mpadu's African Brothers Band was formed in 1963. One of the uh, founding members of the band was Eddie Doncor. The name was in support of the call by Kwame Nkrumah for African unity. The group was later renamed the African Brothers International Band in 1973. Amparu came to prominence in 1967 when he released his song EBT Ye or Some Are Well Seated, a song that was seen as potentially critical of the then governing National Liberation Council, uh, which had been utilized by the Central Intelligence Agency in the counter revolution of February of 1966 that ousted uh, Osajifu Kwame Nkrumah from uh, the presidency in the First Republic of Ghana. And of course, it disappeared uh, from the airways, the song Some Are Well Seated, only returning after the end of military rule. In 1973, he won a nationwide competition in Ghana to be crowned uh, the Adwo To Ohini, or the singer-in-chief. His musical career also involved him in electoral politics, including composing a song for Jerry Rollins' National Democratic Congress Party to use in the 1992 election campaign. Amparu also released a song critical of an attempt to disqualify Rollins from the 1992 elections based on him being half Scottish. <clears throat> now, Nana Amparu toured uh, with the SK Opong Drama Group, uh, which performed concerts and short plays on the programs of his band. Uh, this group later evolved to become the cast of the Osolo Nazi, the most popular uh, Ghana TV drama series for many years. One of his songs, Obra, became the theme song for Obra, another very popular Ghanaian TV drama series. He also wrote the theme song for the National Operation Feed Yourself program of the Military National Redemption Council for National Food Security. And uh, that was uh, some background information on the African Brothers Band, uh, led by Nana Kwame Amparu. And you're listening to uh, the Pan African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan African Newswire segment of our program. And, of course, uh, the Pan African Newswire is uh, available, and uh, we'll give you information on how you can Log on to the Pan-African Newswire. <clears throat> Our lead story uh, deals with the current security situation in the Republic of Sudan. 
shelling and gunfire resumed earlier today in the Sudanese capital at the end of a 24-hour ceasefire that was globally respected, according to witnesses. The latest in a series of ceasefire agreements enables civilians to stock up on essential supplies or flee the country. Nearly two months uh, into the war between the Army General Al-Bahan and paramilitary commander Degala, where 1,800 people have been killed, according to the NGO Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project. Nearly 2 million have been displaced, including 476,000 who have sought refuge in neighboring countries, and that's according to the United Nations. In this context, uh, Egypt reversed a visa uh, exemption for children, women, and elderly people. All citizens of neighboring Sudan will have had... uh, to obtain visas before crossing the border. The Egyptian foreign ministry cited yesterday a crackdown on illegal activities, including fraud, and said the nation welcomed some 200,000 Sudanese nationals. Egypt's foreign ministry stressed in a statement that its consulate in Sudan have been provided with the necessary electronic devices to carry out these regulations, ensuring the orderly entry of uh, Sudanese uh, citizens. In other news, in West Africa, one week after the end of a deadly unrest that shook Senegal, the country still is counting its losses. Volunteers and staff from Dakar Sheikh Antajiok University are trying to salvage what can still be out of some 200,000 university archives. Youth armed with Molotov cocktails allegedly set ablaze the building. Until proven otherwise, I believe students came and deemed it necessary to burn down the archives of the Faculty of Letters and Humanities, a despicable result. I'm short of words. Emotional Abdurrahmani Kunta, an archivist and documentarist at the Faculty of Arts uh, said uh, in Senegal. Sites across Senegal were plunged into chaos after a jail term was handed to opposition leader Usman Sonko. His supporters claimed he was framed. Sheikh Antajok University archives included documents spanning from 1957 to 2010, the destroyed files are mainly student registration forms, photos, birth certificates, report cards, and theses. Staff documents, among which those belonging to professors and researchers, were also burned. Student archivists such as Suleimani Jalo are helping sort through uh, the burnt archives. Quote, we are both saddened and devastated. <clears throat> Seeing archives like this burned down means that a part of the history of the university, and in particular, the Faculty of Arts will be missing, he lamented. A Ethi National Archives office, also located in Dakar, the director admits Senegal has never had a national building devoted to housing its documents. Nearly 20 linear kilometers of papers are stored in difficult conditions there. The oldest documents date back to 1672. Fatumata Giara argues the university incident should serve as a wake-up call to the authorities. Quote, the losses are immense, particularly in the case of the archives. These are files that have not been digitized. There are degrees of destruction, of course. When fire consumes archives, sometimes some parts remain unharmed. But as for the majority, I've seen the images. It's appalling. Three days were necessary to retrieve the documents from the burnt building. They are essential to retrace a student's journey, issue a diploma, or to authenticate it at the request of an employer, for example. Senegal lags in terms of 
digitization of archives despite the launch of a project in 2021 aimed to digitize 15 million birth certificates. The project cost 18 billion CFA francs, about 27.5 million euros. According to experts uh, in digitization, East of Sky, the nation's lack of, quote, political will, unquote, to sort uh, this problem out. And you're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in the Republic of South Africa, U.S. Geological Survey, which records earthquakes around the world, recorded a 5.0 magnitude earthquake at 2.38 a.m. local time. It said the epicenter was six kilometers, that's 3.7 miles from Alberton, a town on the southeastern outskirts of Johannesburg. There were no immediate reports of casualties or any significant damage. An earthquake of that strength is classified as minor but would be clearly felt and might cause small damage to buildings. Journalists who live close to the epicenter said that the shaking felt like being on a moving train and lasted for about a minute. Many South Africans in Hauteng province, which includes Johannesburg, said on social media they awoke to find the walls of their homes shaking. Local media published videos showing the moment the quake struck. Earthquakes are rare in the Republic of South Africa. The last one to measure 5.0 magnitude or, or higher was in 2014, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. That 5.4 magnitude quake had its epicenter near the gold mining town of Orkney in the northwest province, and one person was reported to have died. And in Tunisia, European leaders visiting the country earlier today held out the promise of more than 1 billion euros in financial aid to rescue its teetering economy and better police its borders. In an effort to restore stability in the North African country, and to stem migration from it uh, to the shores of Europe. A Tunisian rights group denounced the EU proposal as, quote, blackmail, unquote, saying it would worsen abuses of migrants and was aimed at closing Europe's doors to those in need. Tunisia's increasing autocratic president hosted the leaders of Italy, the Netherlands, and the European Commission for talks aimed at smoothing the way for an international financial bailout of the troubled country. On the eve of the talks, Tunisian President Thais Saeed made an unannounced visit to a migrant camp in the coastal city of Safax, a central jumping-off point for boat journeys crossing the Mediterranean to Italy. Saeed spoke with families living in the camp and pleaded for international aid for Africans who converge on Tunisia as a transit point to reach Europe. And uh, finally, uh, in relationship to developments in Central America, Honduras opened an embassy in Beijing earlier today, Chinese state media reported, months after the Central American nation broke off relations with Taiwan to establish diplomatic ties with the People's Republic of China. China's foreign minister, King Yang, and his Honduran counterpart, Enrique Riena, took part in the inauguration of the embassy earlier this morning. China's officials, CCTV, reported. The report said Honduras needed to determine the embassy uh, permanent location and would increase its number of staff. Keen pledged that China would establish a new model with Honduras of, quote, friendly cooperation, end quote, between countries with different sizes and systems, according to a statement from China's foreign ministry. The symbol of the two sides strengthening diplomatic ties came during 
Honduras President Xiomara Castro's six-day visit to the People's Republic of China. With that, we'd like to conclude uh, this segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal, the worldwide radio broadcast, this special edition of our program. And we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. And that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Etta James uh, with the track and title, I Prefer You, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast, and June is Black Music Month, and right now we want to go into a audio documentary on the history of uh, African-American music in the United States, traditional, indigenous, and urban uh, African-American music. Uh, this uh, documentary is narrated by the legendary B.B. Uh, King. Let's listen in. Hey, hey. 
But the music of the blues is more than rhythm alone. The roots of the blues are in the field hollow, too. The solitary song of one man alone in the field, from sunup to sundown. I was waiting on my cemetery. You can hear the rhythm of the work song and the mournful cry of the field hollerer in Low Down Dirty Blues, sung by Son House. He and Willie Brown recorded some of the earliest Delta blues. Enjoy the rediscovery of country blues in the 1960s. Willie Brown, his close friend, and most of the others didn't. Well, you know the sun is going down. I sit behind that old western hill. I sit behind that old western hill. Bye. 
A contemporary of Patton's sings Charlie Patton's Spoonful. Go to jail about Spoonful. Go to jail about Spoonful. Spoonful, you go to jail about. I fight my papa by. Oh, fight my papa by Spoonful. Fight my papa by Spoonful. Find the father. Penitentiary in the Mississippi Delta. Until very recent times, Southern penitentiaries operated as plantations. The black inmate lived much as his grandfather had in slavery. And here the old slave work song survives in prison chants. Booker T. Washington White, Booker White, served time here. Booker was a great admirer of Charlie Patton, and like Patton, he played music in the Duke Joints and Honky Tonks. And like Patton, his life was full of hard times. Hard times led to trouble. And for Booker White, trouble one night in the Duke Joint led to parchment. You can hear echoes of the prison work song in Booker White's blues. I got a bulldog. was the cradle of the blues, but blues was being sung all over Mississippi by men like Ishman Bracey, Bo Carter, Garfield Akers, Sam Collins, Reuben Lacey, Mississippi John Hurt, Don Thomas, and a whole lot more. And throughout the South, from Texas to Georgia, and on into the Carolinas, black men and women had the blues and sang them. People like Blind Lemon Jefferson, Blind Blake, and Hoodie Ledbetter, 
known as Lead Belly. But still, the center was the Delta, home of a man who had the shortest but most spectacular career of any blues singer. One who played with Sonhouse and Willie Brown. One you often hear spoken of as the greatest country blues singer who ever lived, Robert Johnson. I always heard that he was a young man that liked to play his music, liked to be around musicians that played, and of course had a great influence on many of the musicians that we know about today. But one thing, we don't even know what he looked like. All we can guess from his music is that he was a driven man, singing about the hellhound on his trail. He perfected the technique of using a bottleneck or copper tubing on his strings, making his guitar wail and cry. He'd play the juke joints and dances, chasing women and singing about his hard times with them. Until they say he was murdered in 1938 at the age of 26 by a jealous girlfriend who poisoned his whiskey. Wanting a woman's a big part of the blues. And in those days, if a black man lost his woman, he'd lost everything, because he didn't have anything else. had auditioned in Jackson for a record company talent scout, Henry C. Spear. From 1926 to 1940, Spear auditioned hundreds of musicians at his record store on Ferris Street, sending the best of them, like Charlie Patton, Son House, Willie Brown, and Robert Johnson, to record. Trying to get them $50 a song. Throughout the South of the 20s and 30s, the blues was heard on race records, recorded by blacks, 
for blacks. The blues was becoming profitable for the big record companies, if not for the musicians, who often sold the rights to a song for a dollar. But for every musician like Robert Johnson who recorded and left a record of the music, there was hundreds who never recorded and remained obscure. But they sang the same blues of lost love and hard times, hoping the next day would bring something better. Hayes McMullen of Tutwala, Mississippi. Another singer who Henry Spear auditioned was Tommy Johnson. Johnson was the center of a school of blues that developed around Jackson in the 20s. Houston Stackhouse played the jukes with Tommy Johnson, and he remembers the time that he helped Johnson fix a flat. Then he drank canned heat with him. Tommy got drunk, and Houston got sick. It's the only way to come from back to the Delta for my dad and granddad's funeral. Just Tommy Johnson working on two ties. As, as both his front ties was full of tie, you know, had them still full of rag things. And they had him trouble with one of his back ties. And so I, I said, well, so you're trying to get that tie out, fix that. We'll help you fix it. So we stopped and helped him fix the tie. And he said, I want some candy so bad, I don't know what to do. I said, well. I said, we get tired fixed, we go uptown, I'll buy some candy. So we made it to Chris Spring. Went on in there. I went in Chris Drugstore and got him four boxes. Then he carried me out on Camp Street, and that's where he made it up there. And so, uh, give me a couple of big glasses. <laughs> so that's settled with me. <laughs> we come on to Chris Spring, he went to playing music out in town on the streets. I went to Fall and Allen going on there. Police said, what boy is that drunk like? <laughs> he said, 
And that's the way he stacked up. So somebody came home. No one put him in jail. But he, they came. He got found. Ben Bowman, he came and brought me home. They told me to lay me up on the floor. And he told my speech. Old Houston Stackhouse was switched down. <laughs> sundown. But blues can be good time music, too. Music to drink and dance to. This is Crawford, Mississippi, home of Big Joe Williams and his custom-made nine-string guitar. And he knows how to use it to get this jerry jump. Cuban man, one in Spain, 
Got a woman in London, England, one cover. It's a cardinal. Go down, dirty chain. Big Juke Joint. 
Starting in the 20s and through the 30s and 40s, Mississippi blacks began migrating north, leaving the plantations, looking for jobs in the city. Memphis was the first stop along the way. There was music all up and down Beale Street. W.C. Handed, his band, was playing here. And Ragtime, popularized much earlier by Scott Joplin, was still around. Guitarist Hacksaw Herney from Jackson, Mississippi, plays the guitar rag. in the Depression years in the South. Some people say the Depression forced the white man to fill what the black man had felt all the time. But what was hard on the white man was even harder on the black man. Gus Cannon was an entertainer who couldn't find work, so he played in traveling medicine shows that sold pills and tonics to cure every ill and featured free entertainment by black musicians like Gus. I, 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 I walked down the runway. We had a little runway. Hold up on everybody. I said, hold your hand up if you want it. One dollar. Why don't you hold your hand up? I offered the feedback. I offered darn. I offered the feedback. You can't get away with mine. Please. the music of many women. Women blues singers was usually accompanied by pianists or groups. Ma Rainey, Mamie Smith, and Bessie Smith was playing up north, and in Memphis, Memphis Minnie from Tunica County, Mississippi. In their tradition, Mrs. Van Hunt.
and still singing the blues in Memphis, Memphis Mo Rainey, who borrowed the name of the great blues woman. But Bill Street is not what it used to be. No more music in the park, no people moving around from bar to bar, and no more magic in the air. Furry Lewis, born in Greenwood, Mississippi, is one of the last of the old-time Bill Street bluesmen. His blues borrows from many different elements, but his sound is all his own. Baby, do and 
And that woman I love, she got great long curly hair. And that woman I got great long curly hair. Mother, father, don't lie for that. Sing that by yourself, get top of Purrier.
You know, my woman told me, for I don't want you no more. My woman told me yesterday, for I don't want you no more. But she's on my Daniel everywhere I go, Lord knows. She put laudanum in my coffee. She put strychnine in my tea. Put love in my coffee, signine in my tea. She didn't kind in my biscuit, but she didn't hurt for you. While Delta and Bill Street joints were filled with the blues, down in New Orleans, blacks had developed a different music, jazz. Jazz is next of kin to the blues. It often uses the 12-bar blues structure and blues chord changes, but jazz has fuller instrumentation and more group improvisation. Blues came from the country. Jazz is the sound of the city. Like jazz, gospel music had a lot in common musically with the blues. Many blues musicians played both gospel and blues. But it wasn't easy for them because the church would have nothing to do with the blues. It's the other side of the coin, the choice the musician has to make, almost between God and the devil. Between the church, the fundamental southern church that permitted no drinking or dancing, and the fast, loose life of the hunky-tonk. Many blues musicians gave up the blues as they grew older and closer to death, they had chosen the church. They had found the home. Those that stayed with the blues never found the home. They was on the road, traveling gig to gig, town to town, up to Memphis and beyond to places like Chicago. Highway 61, the main road north out of the Delta. Sixty-one highway, long old highway that I know. Sixty-one, sixty-one highway, long old highway that I know. Came on from New York City, lost to the Gulf of Mexico. I walk down sixty-one. I give down in my knees. Lord, I walk down 61 till I give down in my knees. I ask the Lord to give me back. Give me back my good gal, if you please. the 30s and 40s, 
thousands of blacks looking for work left Mississippi and moved north to Chicago. Sweet home Chicago was not necessarily so sweet. Problems were the same. No job, no money. Instead of shacks, they lived in tenements. Instead of porches, they sang on street corners. Beginning in the late 30s, Chicago began to replace the Delta as the center of blues music. Some of the great Mississippi musicians who moved early to Chicago were Big Bill Brunsey, Sonny Land Slim, Johnny Temple. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, aspects of the history of African-American music in the United States and discussing legendary artists uh, such as Charlie Patton, Willie Brown, Robert Johnson, and uh, Furry Lewis, and many, many others. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and of course, uh, this is Sunday, uh, June the 11th, uh, 2023, and we're commemorating uh, Black Music Month for 2023. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment. Oh. 
Big as the end of my thumb. I got something between my legs. I'll make a dead man come. Oh, daddy. Baby, won't you shave them dry? No, no, no. Want you to grind me, baby. Grind me until I cry. Say, I fucked all night and all the night before, baby. And I feel just like I want to fuck some more. Great God, Daddy, grind me, honey, and shave me dry. And when you hear me holler, baby, I want you to shave me dry. I got nipples on my titty, big in my thumb. Daddy, you say that's the kind of woman you want, and you can make them come. Oh. Daddy shave me dry And I'll give you something, baby Where it'll make you cry I'm gonna turn back my mattress And let you oil my springs I want you to find me, Daddy Till the bell do ring all day Want you to shave and dry Oh, great God, Daddy, if you can't shave them, baby, won't you try? Now, fucking was the thing that would take me to heaven. I'd be fucking in the studio till the clock back level all day. Daddy, shave them dry. I'll fuck you, baby. Honey, I'll make you cry. Now your nuts hang down like a damn bell clapper And your dick stands up like a steeple 
Your goddamn asshole stand open like a church door and the crab walks in like people. Oh, shit. Oh, Woo! Baby won't shave him dry. A big sow gets that from eating cone and a pig gets that from sucking. Read you see this poor fat lack I am glad God I got fat and fuck. Shame on My back is made of whalebone and my cock is made of brass. And my fucking is made for working men two dollars red garden round to kiss my ass. The uh, music of uh, Lucio uh, Bogan and with the track entitled Shave Me Dry. And before that, we heard two tracks uh, from Memphis Many. Uh, one song, uh, Hustling Woman Blues. And uh, before that, uh, we heard I'm Going Home. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special uh, worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, June 11th, uh, 2023. And uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into a another uh, audio documentary on the lifetimes and contributions of Mr. McKinley Morganfield, uh, better known as Muddy Waters, uh, one of the major contributors uh, to African-American music during the uh, 20th century. Uh, he uh, was initially recorded by the federal and, of course, later moved to Chicago, Illinois, uh, where he recorded uh, for chess records for many years uh, during the 1950s and became a signature artist and influencer in regard to the broader spectrum of African-American as well as American music as a whole. Let's listen uh, to uh, this uh, recount of uh, the contributions of Muddy Waters. <laughs> Muddy was playing when I was plowing. Amused that is. <laughs> and I call him today the godfather of the blues. My dad always told told Muddy that he was gonna preach. Because if you notice, he had a lot of that in his singing. You said you love me, baby. Please come on the phone sometime. There's a demon in me, and Muddy, there's a, every, there's a demon in everyone. He's trying to express it to everybody. They say, there's a dark beast in us all. 
Muddy had something about him that made the songs themselves stand out. But what he was doing at the same time was inventing the rock and roll combo. When Muddy Waters was talking to you, I was patting my feet. When he was talking, it sounded like he was singing all the time. The most sexy blues man that I've ever encountered is Muddy, without a doubt. He's bad, man. I, I, I think about him now and I get kind of trembling. No, you He was as much as a family man as he could be. He was a womanizer. He knew how to play his hand. <laughs> he played it well. <laughs> Guys like Muddy Waters, you know, you can't be as great as Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf without having another deeper level that has nothing to do with music. It's based on experiences, you know. captivity of slavery, the, the frustration of newfound freedom. It's a voice in the southern darkness complaining about the human condition. Name of Kenny Morganfield, nicknamed Muddy Water. Stowall's famous guitar picker. Everybody called him Muddy. Mm-hmm. His grandmother gave him that name, and everybody called him Muddy. I was with them. I was my grandmother raised me, you see. Oh, I see. Yeah. My grandmother raised me up in. Uh, everybody had to work. Didn't they? Everybody had to work. You know, I don't let little kids, ten years old, out there working. You know, on the phone. the days of the sharecropper, of course the landowner owned the, actually owned the land, but the, uh, the sharecropper was, made a settlement with the landowner at the beginning of the year, and he was furnished a house, he was furnished his food, most farms had a big commissary on them, uh, even farms printed their own money or stamped out their own coins to be used in the commissary on the farm. Money, money, he... He didn't have nothing but a one bedroom, the kitchen, the living room, rest of a little kitchen built on the back there, made out of log, had paper, paper side of the wall with newspapers, stuff like that, you know. Yeah. He was driving the tractor there. Whatever was left was the sharecropper's money at the end of the year. So, uh, in many instances, it wasn't much. Well, I laid down, down last night. Well, I tried to take my rest. 
that's why early in the morning you hear a guy, he's maybe going out there to catch his uh, mules in the morning or go to pick cotton or something. Uh, and he's come up with a thing about... I would do the same thing because I know all the will concern what we, you're talking about. I would say, if time don't get no better, up the road I'm gone. When we were little boys, our dad, he made us a, a guitar on the wall, on the outside wall of the house. The first thing that, uh, like the first were those one-string slides, you know, that they put on like the wooden cabins, and it's like it converts the whole cabin into a guitar. They do it like this. You see those guys down there do it. And like the whole house becomes the uh, the resonating box. I began it in Mississippi. I first started blowing the harmonic. Well, I went down. And I became by 17 or 18, I switched over to guitar. Well, I called on me to pray. Fell on my knees now. Mom, I didn't know that. Are you a church going man at all? I never knew them going on church. You don't get that and go go around to the blues. He's working for the devil. <laughs> now he might have went to church, but I never seen him at no church at all. I know he'd be playing the blues and different things. Well, that's what my grandmother told me when I first picked up a harmonica. I was going on my she said, Well, son, you sent him. You're playing for the devil. The devil will get you, you know. I want to be one, two things, a well-known preacher, uh, a well-known musician. I couldn't preach, so I, there was nothing left for me to do but grab a guitar. Of course, up here where our Stovall store is now, used to be a big commissary up there, and everybody uh, gathered there on the weekends. It was a joint on the side. They, they usually had what they call uh, fish fries, you know, on those Saturday nights. Well, guys catch fresh fish, you know, right out of the Mississippi River. And now, uh, money go and play for these, what we call parties. It's sort of like a, a boiler. A boiler have a pop-off valve on it, you know, whenever the pressure get too high in there, then pop-off valve will open up. So we use blues as a pop-off valve for those that was depressed. Well, now you know, bye-bye, baby. I ain't got no more to say. Now, just like I've been telling you, guy, you're going to have to. Now, I need my help out here. You're going to miss me. When I'm dead and gone. Alan Lomax was a, a folklorist, but he was also someone who was very much interested in the interaction of music and culture. And he got together with a, a Fisk University professor, and they actually were searching for Robert Johnson. That's who Alan Lomax really wanted to record, but because of various circumstances and uh, limited information. He didn't realize Robert Johnson was dead. Well, Alan Lomax, he pulled up Monday, Monday morning in a brand new Hudson. It's a 42 Hudson Super 6 big car then. And he said, uh, my name is Alan Lomax. Say, I'm from Washington, D.C. I'm from the Library of Congress. Say, I want to record him. I want him to make records for me. He's going to pay me a place to stay. And, and uh, 
bought me food and brought me back, gave me a $20 bill to go to my pocket. Then he went on down and recorded Muddy Water after he left me. Of course, the, the story goes, when he heard that the white man was looking for him, he thought it was a revenuer, which I'm sure he had every reason to think. But when he found out it wasn't, uh, I think there was a, something different about Muddy, where Muddy saw this was a way out, this was a ticket, if not to Chicago, to somewhere beyond Stovall's plantation. I wonder if you'd tell me, if you can remember, uh, when it was that you made that blues, Muddy Water. I made that blue up about the 8th of October in 38. you remember where you were when you were doing your singing? And how it, how it happened? No, I mean, where you were sitting and what you were thinking about? Speaking of puncture on the car. And I had been mistreated by a girl, and this looked like that was running my mind to sing this. Well, I just felt blue, and the song fell into my mind. time Muddy ever hears his voice on record. Lomax records him and plays it back, and Muddy hears his voice and says, man, I can sing. Well, I feel in love, like I feel today. I'm going to pack my suitcase and make my deal I'm trouble. I think Muddy always felt he would get away, but there were some people that probably felt they never would leave so far. And I never be satisfied, and I just can't keep up. Once the mechanical picker came into being, there was a lot less need for all these people, and there was quite a mass exodus of the uh, farm labor from this area to the larger cities like Detroit, uh, St. Louis, Chicago. And I never be satisfied, and I just could. The guy I was working with, me and the boss, we had a couple of words. And so that wasn't no, no place to have too many words for the white dude at that time. That's uh, your life, right? <laughs> <laughs> when Mother Water was late coming to the, the wake and got on the tractor, he went on down the field where he was and told him if he going to be late like that again, He's going to put somebody else on that track. He said, no, you ain't going to put nobody on, on there now. You can get it now because I'm getting old. He got right off of that track and walked on up there, got his suitcase and left away from you. Mine hit me said, go to Chicago. That's like that. Over oh, that was on Wednesday, Friday night. I had an arm full of train on my way. On Maxwell Street, there was crowds, and where there was crowds, there was money, and where there was money, there was musicians looking to make some money. They sharpened their sound that way, each playing with the other, each playing against the other in a way. And that's where Muddy began to assemble his band. John left the South. John came up north. I got the shoes off of Maxwell. And Maxwell Street was just like this, just full of people. Musicians would, they would walk from Arkansas, Missouri, and Mississippi with the guitar on the back to come and play in Maxwell Street. Anybody can be a blues singer, a blues player. You can just play one string. You can just play, you know, a glass, a teacup, spoons, 
bones. You know, that's what the blues is about. Well, I brought it to Chicago and put the big beat behind it, you know. Yeah. yeah. So instead of instead of two people, the guitar and the harmonic, no drums, and I brought it to Chicago and I put a put the drum behind it, I put the bass behind it, and put the big sound to it, and then then they named it Chicago. <laughs> it's the same Delta Blues in my book, though, you know. So they were meeting the needs of the society, you know what I mean? So get ready, ready, You know what I mean? He's come and shouted up so Friday night, Saturday night, just got paid, you know. And it was city blues. And they, they were inventing it as they went along because nobody knew anything about electric guitars or how to record them or anything. It was just uh, all beautiful experimentation. Leonard Chess, let's go to Leonard Chess first. Cause that's... Well, my father was an immigrant from Poland, and uh, through his trials and tribulations, he ended up owning a tavern in Chicago called the Macombo Lounge. The, the club was a club where blacks frequented uh, jazz musicians late at night, prostitutes. It was a real street kind of club. Well, babe, I just can't be satisfied, and I just can't be in 1950, he started Chess Records, and um, primarily to put out music aimed at the black community. And Muddy Waters was uh, one of the first blues artists on Chess. I, I came to Chicago. For, uh, I felt like I was good enough to get on record, and, and uh, where I was living, that you know, I didn't have a chance. You know. no. Just wasn't no uh, that kind of uh, business down there, uh, recording. And, not in my percentage. So I figured if I come to Chicago and uh, and, uh, and a while the people begin to know me, I'd probably get on records, which that's what did happen. Muddy Waters had an artistic goal. Leonard Chess had a commercial plan. Insofar as Muddy Waters did not threaten that commercial plan, Leonard Chess was willing to give him room. And from that resulted arguably the most important two-sided record of the post-war era. I can't be satisfied, so I just feel like going home. Well, baby, I can't never be satisfied. And I just can't get The Chesses were immigrants from Poland. The artists, were Im most of them were immigrants from the South. They wanted to make money as immigrants because they wanted a better life. And a hit was the quickest way. They was right on time. I wouldn't say they was ahead of their time, but they was right on time because I don't care how you do that today, you just don't get you don't get the music like that like you did then today. Stand up before you're ready to blow, so I'm no one to bring you up. All right, folks. No, sit now, but stand up when you're ready to blow. All right. This son of a bitch over here fucking me up. I can't preach on the first beginning, baby. Can't, can't talk shit on the first beginning. Well, it's just like, I, I, like I'm your baby. I got to get into it, baby. Baby, you got to get into it from the first word. I mean, it's, not, it's not a broad that you can sit there two hours and bullshit with her. I make a hot and then get her. Make a hot and get her, baby. Roll one. Take one. I don't think there's any real difference between the white devil that was uh, Stovall, Colonel Stovall, and 
Lomax, and inevitably Leonard Chess, who were the white devils with whom Muddy had to deal throughout his career and life uh, as a sharecropping blues musician. You know, my father, my uncle, Chess Records, they weren't angels. If they were angels, they couldn't have survived dealing even with the artists who weren't angels either. Period. The gypsy woman told my mother Before I was born You got a boy child coming He's gonna be a son of a gun yeah, This was the Zanzibar here This is built for the Zanzibar from, from the corner to roundabout I would say what's the I would say right here. And it used to be the stage, as you go in, the stage would be about sitting about here. This would be around about the front of the stage here. And Muddy Waters used to sit on this side, be on this side of the stage over here. And when they started playing their music, it was a gigantic, super dynamic sound like you never could imagine. And Muddy Waters would hit his guitar, he would play it, strike it with his, with his picks on his finger. And Jimmy Rogers said, And you would hear that, that sound ringing all over the place. And the place would be packed with people. People loved the blue, people loved Muddy Waters. They worshiped Muddy Water, and Muddy Waters was great. This open sexuality of the blues puzzle was really fueled by electricity. Again, these people coming up from Mississippi, Arkansas, Tennessee, they didn't have electricity in their homes, a lot of them. They couldn't read and write. You know, uh, we all know today the power of the electric guitar. Well, you can you imagine in a small, packed blues club, the people who were used to acoustic guitar, all of a sudden they're hearing screaming electric guitar, amplified harmonica, loud drums, with a strong backbeat. And it's still a fool. A hoochie-coochie, man. Uh, yeah, that is the most powerful music ever, the most expressive. We got great, great artists. Jimmy Rogers, James Cotton, all those guys came up. There was never better bands than Muddy Waters' band. So he took the power of the solo blues artist, uh, transformed it to a band, and uh, conveyed it to the audience. So uh, by the time of the mid-1950s, he had had a series of hits, Hoochie Coochie Man included, and had enough money that he couldn't buy a house. Hello, my name is Charles William. I'm a stepson of Muddy Water House. This is the back porch of my pop used to live, Muddy Water. Were we moving here? Yeah. February 16, 1954, on a Tuesday morning, 11 o'clock, from the west side. Okay. 
Okay. Here comes out this way. You know they're coming. They went to Van This was a rehearsal room. This should have been a recording studio. This is the rehearsal room. Number one. All blues singers. From John Lee Hudson to B.B. King, Bobby Bland, Lil Montgomery, Lil Brother Montgomery, Lil Walton, Memphis Slim. Memphis Slim was right here one day. Him and his friend, uh, they had a cousin. And he was on the piano. Wish me well, baby, I got you, put you down. And drinking the White Horse Scott. When I was a little boy, I could come down here all the time. Grandma. That's what we call, call her grandma. That was Muddy's wife. Well, Geneva would wear, like, a house coat, uh, usually around the house. He would come in, like, at 2 o'clock, and as soon as he you hear the door, you know, I would, like, jump up because I knew he was coming home. That meant I could stay up. You know, I could get up and stay up. Geneva always would get up. And, you know, it would be it would be like a Sunday dinner right then. And she'd smoke a cigarette, and she'd have a cigarette, like, dangling out of her mouth while she's talking to you. Smoke would be running up her nose. So she made me rabbit. I had never tasted rabbit before. But I never had anything like coon or things like that, you know. But I know I would hear Muddy talk about it, you know, and like those country people say, Well you got to know how to cook him. You know, they give it a personality, you know, that you got to know how to cook him. You know. Now this is the room where Muddy Water and my father used to sleep at, right here. Sometime now here what the T V was here. He basically would like lay in the bed all day and look at TV. Baseball. He loved baseball, loved the White Sox. So he would lay on TV and look and eat ice cream. Ice cream. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of his favorite uh, foods was black walnut ice cream and grape pop. You know, uh, knee-high grape soda. And then he'd take like a half a gallon of the ice cream and just let a big chunk go in there and make a soup. Like when I was a little kid, man. He loved that. But Muddy loved that. He, he really enjoyed that. I'm going to say something to you. I don't care how you feel. You just don't realize you got yourself a good deal. He was married to Geneva. They got along all okay, but it was a lot of friction because of outside women. Geneva, the wife, she was at home. She was ill. Okay, uh, Leola stayed on the same. She stayed on the safe south side also. I don't know how far from Muddy she stayed, but Mildred, she was the woman that goes to the club. I imagine. And I was the younger one that was in the background. Muddy had a girlfriend. I can't remember her name. She was really pretty. Uh, she'd always be there. And then right around the corner, he had a family. Uh, Lucille was his mistress all through my childhood. <laughs> he was romantic and very jealous. Very, very jealous. Real jealous. <laughs> Uh, when I would go out, if anyone came up and asked for a dance, he would come off the dance floor. He would come off the stage. 
and it was a prop. Yeah, he was a passionate man. You know, usually all country boys are. <laughs> they keep more than one woman. <laughs> yeah, he's very passionate. He tells you about the number of kids he got. <laughs> he got his share. Lucille was quite a character. She would um, call the house, you know, come by the house when the kids, when he had, when the kids came into picture, um, they would be dropped off at the house, and it was, um, it was very disrespectful for Geneva. He felt he could do anything and get away with it, and he did. Very mean. Um, Inconsiderate, because I have to say inconsiderate, because when I told him I was pregnant, then uh, I don't think uh, Muddy believed that T was his son until after he was born. And then he couldn't say he wasn't because he looked just like him. Well, I learned a long time ago that the only thing that a black man have is his lady. Nothing else. He can have money and anything else. But the one thing that a black person, black male like, is his lady. And if he got his lady, no money, no anything else, he's happy. You're a 19-year-old. She got weighed up like a baby child. record was when he went to Newport and did Mojo Working Live, and after that they started bringing all of us in. Again, I think the first taste of that sexuality that he showed to those early, in those early black clubs, that he laid out this 99% white audience, and they just went crazy. And I think in the 1960 uh, Newport Festival, he showed his ass. You know, he like ripped it up. 
It's like, okay, changing of the guard, and the audience is there, different audience. What is this about? Curiosity, mystery, boom, stamp of approval. <laughs> Just don't work on you. I start seeing more and more white faces. Then the college kids start coming in uh, <clears throat> more and more. And uh, you realize it was just the music, just the blues. Ah. <laughs> Uh, well, the show that you would see Muddy do at Peppers wasn't the show that you'd see Muddy do when he was at these uh, uh, folk concerts or something, you know. Muddy would turn around and take a beer bottle and shake it up really good and put it in his pants. Then he'd turn back around and start singing, I'm a man. And then he would unzip his pants, pull out the beer bottle, pop the cap, and foam would be coming all out. And he's shaking the beer bottle, I'm a man, and shaking the microphone. And the ladies would be just swinging the purses saying, sing it, buddy, sing it. He's there singing about sex and fighting. And I think the English kids, their minds were blown by this. So they said, wow, you know, we want to do that. That's different, that's wild, that's radical. But things like, I just want to make love to you, uh, I just, I mean, universal. I just want to make love to you. It wasn't, duh, 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 duh. I don't want you, duh, 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 duh. it was, dun, 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 dun. I don't want you, duh, 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 duh. People liked it, actually. <laughs> it gave them another concept for blues music, I suppose, that it didn't all have to be slow. To you. Rolling Stones, aren't they great? <laughs> we got managed to get our way to America, and... Uh, and actually to get the record in chess. It was 2120 South Michigan Avenue. Some guy painting the ceiling on a, a stepladder. And as we're walking by and this guy is explaining the studio, he said, oh, by the way, you might like to meet this guy. That's Muddy Waters. And under there's Muddy in overalls and he's whitewashing and I'll never forget the image, and it's the most amazing. It's Muddy's great big beaming black face, and it's all splattered with whitewash. And I'm looking at my man, right, on the top of this stepladder with a paintbrush covered in whitewash. And that's the way I meet Muddy. Yeah, that's not a true story. That's some kind of Keith's fantasy, and I tease him about that. He swears that's what's true, but... First of all, if you knew Muddy Waters, you, you, you just know that wasn't happening, you know. Uh, he just wasn't in there 
painting the wall. Marty was always dressed sharp as a tack. He wasn't about to be getting no paint spots on his stents and shoes or his custom-made suit, you know. At the second day, we were unloading our guitars and stuff out of the, 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 the van and carrying them into the studio and somebody behind us said, uh, you, you boys want a hand? We looked around, it was Muddy Waters and we were like, <laughs> in total shock, how idle asking if, if, he, if he could help us carry the guitars in. And he actually did. The Stones, Eric Clapton, the Jeff Becks, and all those people who were selling platinum records. But they came back and say, this is not new music, this is Muddy Waters music. Um, so when we brought it to America, it was like a new music to the white kids here as well, because they hadn't really heard it or didn't really know about it. And they'd say, where can we get this music? And it was just down the road there. <laughs> just go across the river and it's there, you know. We had to come across the ocean. You just have to go across the river and it's there. And they were all like surprised. kids who could buy my record take it home because the mother and father probably break it up, you know. One of the was Dirty Blues. Why Dirty Blues? I didn't know no better. Black Blues and yeah, Dirty Blues? Black Blues was dirty. The single worst thing that ever happened to blues was the oversimplification that the blues was totally and completely only about suffering and represented Nothing more than people whining and bellyaching about their problems. What that characterization did was it made it seem as if the blues were something that ought to be forgotten, that ought to be overcome. Uh, black people in my, in my race that really uh, it's not getting into the blues, especially the young kids. They went the other way, you know. So we got to try to make them live somewhere. You know. mm. I think the blues should forever live. Yeah, well, when rock and roll kind of came in there, they, it kind of pushed the blues out. Because people were, I think, just kind of confused. And this was a new thing out in the street, and they liked it. <laughs> and it kind of just closed the blues down uh, uh, around Chicago. Uh, me and Buddy used to get in a station wagon and drive around to different clubs at night. What well, that used to be blues was rock and roll playing in there. The blues club scene had dropped out completely in Chicago. He wasn't making the kind of money. He was playing Big John's, you know, and those kind of clubs. So I discussed doing Electric Mud with him, and he went for it. Be no slave. Mm. 
Shirt and black silk boxers and black silk socks that were pretty, you know, those pimp socks you kind of see through. Otis Spann uh, drank, and S.P. Leary drank, and Luther Georgia boy Snake Johnson drank, and Muddy Waters drank, and I drank, and a whole darn band drank. We played the blues. 69, October 69. Okay, we just had, we just had did this gig. Uh, we was in, uh, I can't even remember the name, but it was uh, this was an uh, all-black club, anyway, in Covington, uh, Tennessee, and uh, and Muddy uh, uh, and the band all wanted to go back to Chicago right after the gig. Almost back to uh, Champagne when the accident could, which we all seen it. All of a sudden, I'm I'm riding in the truck and I hear Bo say, "Lord have mercy." And then I hear this noise come over the truck, all kinds of debris. He was in the hospital for about, uh, I guess, a good six months or better. What did Muddy say when you took him out? Uh, he didn't say nothing to me, but, I mean, Bo was also helping him. But he looked up at Bo and said, my face messed up. Because, I mean, Muddy, I guess, knew that, that, that his looks had a lot to do with how he got over in his music. Well, he had them guy, he got hurt. In a car accident, he had a pen in his hip, and that was started him to sitting down back again after we all stood up in Chicago.
amazing to me uh, to see somebody who seemed to have it all be unhappy inside for the same reasons that the rest of us are. The guy was totally unneurotic, unself-analytical. He just didn't brood a lot, and yet his music has all those qualities in it. hard to read Muddy. hard to know what he was thinking. But when he spoke, he had a habit. He used to go like this with his, with his uh, finger when he was uh, thinking. But it was almost like his keeping, watching his mouth so he doesn't open it and say, say the wrong thing. He was very regarded to that extent. He told me, if you got something good, keep it in your pocket. Don't tell people. The uh, turn from the 60s to the 70s ends up being a really difficult period in Muddy's life. Leonard Chess dies, you know, they're buddies, and the label is falling apart uh, and is sold. Muddy has this terrible car crash, spends a long time in the hospital, comes out from the hospital, and uh, in no time, uh, Otis Spann dies, which is um, his longtime piano player. And then uh, Geneva, his wife, gets diagnosed with cancer, and she dies. When she got sick, he was really distraught with all of that because I think um, Geneva kept everything together. Before it was right, shortly after that, that Muddy decided that he was going to go get his outside kids because at that time, Lucille had lost custody of the children. They were all in homes. So he decided instead of them being in a home that he would go get them. Well, my home's in the Delta, way out on that farmer's road. Right about the time that I joined Muddy's band, he did move out to Westmont, Illinois. Now you know I'm leaving Chicago, and people I show do hate to go. I hated Westmont. I hated with a passion. <laughs> I was like, where has he taken us? Now you know I'm leaving here in the morning. Won't be back no more. Blues is getting more popular with more festivals, and they were adding blues acts to festivals. Even jazz festivals would have muddy waters, and... So, uh, and then Johnny Winters was producing Muddy Waters. Uh, his profile was coming up. We, we recorded the Hard Again album in October 1976 with Johnny Winter producing. That was a new height. I mean, it was beginning to, you began to realize at that point that you was a musician. I mean, this is when all, I mean, we learned at that, really learned at that point, this is the way a musician is supposed to be. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I got to leave. 
very, very glad to see that he had a joyous last bunch of years with enough recognition and money and comfort and adulation. And I think he had a, a lady companion or two, so I was happy to see it. I was ready to volunteer. Oh, yeah, he always would wake me up. And any time the song would come in his head, he'd get me up. Wake up, Mom, wake up. You got it right, you got it right. I always kept a pen and a pencil by. And he'll sit there and he'll tell me what to write, and I will write it. And I'd be half asleep and nodding, but I'd be writing. When I met him, he'd already been through his really tumultuous years and was a much mellower man, but you could see the turmoil that spawned the blues that then spawned rock and roll. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. When he sings, I'm a man, I mean, those guys can't even compare to what he's got. He's packing, he's packing in his spirit. Forget his pants, you know. Now, when I was a young boy, the age of pride, my mother said I'm going to be the greatest man of life. But now I'm a man with 21. But I always said that instinct come from here. I have lots of fun. the less he played. As he got older, sometimes he would sit on a stool and when they finally get up and start dancing around, he'd just the minister's home. I mean, he never let us know or uh, see how he actually felt. I mean, he still was in good spirit, and he was always in good spirit until he passed away. You know, because he had, he had cancer or something, and they had, had him down in Florida, but he just kept it. He didn't want nobody to know that. And he said for the last two or three months or something, he would just stay in the house in the dark. He didn't want nobody to see him. But he was in bed with, we were both in bed, and I heard him take his laugh. I was there. And that's what he wanted to be with his family. Once upon a time, I had the blues 
I mean, I had them bad, you know. I couldn't pay my light bill. And I couldn't pay my rent. They really got it blues now. But, I mean, today I can pay my rent and I can pay my light bill. And I still got the blues. I must have been born with them. But I think it's from the heart, of which I know it's from the heart. That's my religion, blues. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, a discussion uh, on uh, the lifetimes and contributions of McKinley Morganfield, popularly known as Muddy Waters, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, June the 11th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and this is Black Music Month, and uh, we have been uh, redoing uh, many aspects of the legacy of uh, African music inside the United States and beyond. And uh, that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to close out uh, with uh, the music of Willie Mae Thornton. Another uh, legendary uh, blues artist. This is uh, from uh, the album entitled Ball and Chain. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.